Well, it was, uh, it was a long reading this morning, but uh, we needed to hear the whole thing because it's a, it's a self-contained story in and of itself. Another one of the stories from the book of Numbers uh, where the people grumble uh, and where uh, Moses has a conversation with the Lord and the Lord deals with the people's grumbling in judgment but also in grace. Last week... We saw God's mercy triumph over judgment through the intercession of Moses. Uh, he, he withheld what they deserved, being disinherited, and instead he forgave, just as Moses prayed. So we should note that while the condemnation was removed through his pardon, it didn't mean that his hand of discipline was removed. There were still to be consequences for their stubbornness for the sake of the generation that was to come. The next generation had to learn to fear the Lord through seeing their parents undergo this discipline, the discipline of not entering the land for 40 years. So the rebellions, the judgments that take place after that one we saw last week show us that this discipline in which the older generation died in the desert, through that the younger generation are preserved in order to go into the land. Now before we look at the unfolding story in today's passage, I want to briefly address a big question that may have come up in your minds as you heard it read, or as you read a number of Old Testament stories, and that is, Why does God use violence and death, even of innocent children? That's a common objection that's levelled against the Bible and against the Christian faith in this day and age. In fact, it appeared recently in the Sunday Mail, and uh, thanks to Tom for spotting this and passing it on. Dennis writes... If the Christian God sees everything as people say he does, why doesn't he save babies with cancer? Why didn't he save the Jews? Why does he allow people to murder others? And why doesn't he save people from floods, droughts and earthquakes? How would you answer Dennis? I'll give two brief responses that will hopefully help us begin to think how we might start to answer someone with that objection, but also how we ourselves might be settled in our own faith that God, as we saw last week, always acts in line with his character. Firstly, we need to remember that God is the creator of all things. He has the sovereign right to give life, and to take life away. That's the big lesson of the book of Job. When he had lost everything that he had, and before he'd even faced the worst of his sufferings, he gave a right response to what was happening to him. Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. So Job is he's not just glibly saying it doesn't matter. He's grieving. And, but he worships and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave 
and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now here's a good lesson for us. Job had already clearly wrestled with the matter of God's sovereignty over all things. So that when the time of trial came, he didn't have to scramble around in the thick of the battle to try and work out where his foundation lay. Job already knew the revealed character of God as his creator, as his redeemer. And this enabled him to accept his experience of God's actions. Now on this basis alone, we have a responsibility to not step beyond our creaturely limitations and demand that God give us an explanation for everything that he does. Secondly, we know that God doesn't only operate just on this basis. Not only are we creatures of our Creator, but we are also children of our Heavenly Father. By His goodness and love and grace, He's drawn us to Himself to participate in what He's doing in this world. So, while He is under no obligation to tell us anything, and while we have no basis for demanding a right to know He's nevertheless spoken to us. He's revealed himself in his word, in his son. And he's given us insight to understand something of why he does what he does. So let's dig a bit deeper. We live in a world where, as Ephesians 2.12 says, people are without hope and without God. What that means is the voices of the world that will be coming to us will always come through that lens in which God as creator and father is not factored in to the equation and any notion of hope is always restricted to this world and to this life instead of the biblical hope that goes beyond the grave and has a view into eternity. We must always be on our guard because we can too easily be trained in our thinking by the world instead of having our thinking transformed by the renewing of our minds and the word of Christ. So when we're without hope or God in the world, death becomes the final great tragedy. It's the biggest, the most powerful enemy because In that worldview, no God, no hope, death is the end of my existence. This life now is all important. And so the death of a person before what uh, we have as our life expectancy is seen as unfair. So we charge God, if he exists, with being cruel, if he unexpectedly cuts a person's life short in our estimation. But we who know the gospel should know better than that. We know bodily death is not the end of a person. Death simply marks the end of this first part of our existence 
And after death, we are brought into the presence of God. As Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And we know, because of the cross, that that judgment will be right. Every person will be brought to account for their life. And no one will ever be able to say God has not treated them truthfully or unfairly. So when we see people's lives being brought to a premature end by God, we shouldn't see it as God sending them to hell. Bodily death itself isn't the final judgment as the no hope and no God worldview would have us believe. Rather, it's the means by which we are ushered into the presence of God. And then he will carry out his just judgment. So our friend Dennis sees the death of a baby as God not saving them. Because he sees bodily death as the end. Biblically, salvation isn't based on how long we spend in this life be it 90 days or 90 years. It's about grace. We can say that these babies are no less secure in the hands of a loving, gracious and just God than anyone else who remains physically alive. We can trust God. He has proven himself to be the judge who will always do what is right. We can trust him to do what is right with anyone who dies bodily, be they young or old, good or bad, believers or unbelievers. And so we must say the same when it comes to the wives, the sons and the little ones who were swallowed up by the ground along with their husbands and fathers. Were there family members who did not participate in the rebellion? Were there those there who were living by faith and because of that were in a right relationship with God? We're not told there were, but even if there were, death wasn't the final tragedy for them. From their perspective, it was gain because they were brought into the presence of the God they knew and loved. So why did God take them along with the men? Well, because one way that God worked out his judgments upon those who hated him was to cut off their descendants, to remove their legacy, to make sure that they didn't have children who would perpetuate their sin and bring to their generation the same harm that they had brought to theirs. The Lord is most certainly concerned for every single person, whether they live or die, but he's also concerned with persons as a member of a community. He's dealing here with a nation. His promises were given to Israel, the great nation that was formed because of his promise to Abraham. And he has a goal for Israel to be ultimately fulfilled in Christ and in his bride, the church. So he does what's necessary to purify 
and to refine his people in a corporate sense. That's why the sins of a few individuals brought about judgment on the whole camp. That's why his judgment still impacts those that we think don't deserve it. We recently saw in our community group Bible studies three angles on judgment from 1 Corinthians 11. Firstly, we're told that we have a personal responsibility before God which calls us to judge ourselves in light of his word. All Christians are called to self-judgment. Then secondly, practicing self-judgment avoids the need for God's disciplining judgment. When we, when we fail, we face this judgment, but we're to view it as loving discipline, not as punishing us for our sins. And sometimes this loving discipline will impact those around us. Again, not punishing their sins, but as a warning, as a refining of his people as the body of Christ. And then thirdly, this disciplining judgment gives us hope because it's through it that he's keeping us safe from the final judgment, the judgment of condemnation. His acts of discipline remind us that while condemnation has ended for us in Christ, he nevertheless will use trials and tribulations to bring us to maturity in the image of Christ. His own glory, Christ's glory, came through obedient suffering. So I hope this puts things into perspective for us to grasp what's happening in this story in Numbers. As it unfolds, we see the Lord's action of disciplining judgment for the rebellion. And in it, he deals not only with those who are active in the rebellion, but also with the potential that the rebellion has to spread to the entire nation. So it begins with these three men, Korah, Dathan and Abiram. Now Korah is a Levite, the tribe entrusted with maintaining the tabernacle. Dathan and Abiram, the significance of them is that they are from the tribe of Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben. Now these men looked enviously upon Aaron and Moses, desiring what they considered to be these privileged positions of power. And the challenge is double-barreled. So Korah the Levite, he demands the right to take on the role of priest. For it to be not exclusively for just Aaron and his sons. Dathan and Abiram demand the same right. Why? Because they probably think they can claim firstborn status. We're of the tribe of Reuben, the firstborn of all of the tribes. Their motives are to grasp hold of the power of these roles. But notice the sneaky way in which they present their case. You have gone too far, Aaron and Moses. 
For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So firstly, they argue on the basis of the equality of everyone in Israel. Everyone's holy, all have the Lord dwelling among them, therefore everyone should be allowed to have a go at what you're doing. Why I say this is sneaky is because they've used something that is true to hide their hidden motives. Of course, everyone in Israel were holy. The Lord had said they are his holy people set apart for his purposes. And of course, the Lord was dwelling among them. That was the heart of his covenant promise, to walk among them as their God. But then they jump from this true claim to a demand that doesn't necessarily follow. Since everyone's equal in status, therefore everyone has a right to take on any role that they choose. That argument's fundamentally flawed. We can't argue from our status before God that we then have a right to any role. Our status before God isn't based on what we do, but on his grace. Israel's holiness and God dwelling among them wasn't anything they had done or deserved. They were a gift of pure grace. In fact, as we've seen, they've done anything but deserve to be holy and to have his dwelling So our equality in status before God doesn't give us the right to do anything. Our identity isn't tied up in what we do. Sinful human beings value people on their roles and their performance, thinking that someone's dignity is tied up in what they do. God doesn't. He relates to us by grace. His roles are a gift to us. He appoints different people to different roles and he then gives them the gifts and abilities required to fulfill those roles. So the sneaky part of the argument is they're twisting the truth of people's equal status before God, not so that everyone will have an opportunity, but so that they themselves can grasp at power. They don't want a community where everyone is equal and there's no need for any kind of authority structure. They want a community where they're in charge instead of Aaron and Moses. And then secondly, they they paint a caricature of Moses and Aaron, questioning their motives, making it look like Moses and Aaron are the ones grasping for power, exalting themselves above the assembly of the Lord, like they chose the roles themselves and are pursuing them for selfish gain. Of course, we know that's anything but the case. How many times did Moses resist the call to lead the people, saying, Lord, please choose someone else? Remember Numbers 11, Moses complained about the incredibly heavy burden it was for him to lead them. Remember Exodus 32, when Aaron was under pressure from the people to make an image of a God that they could worship. 
prophet and high priest weren't roles of privilege and ease, but of great solemn responsibility. They brought with them this huge burden with stress, with anxiety, sometimes and often to the point of wanting to give up. They're the kind of roles we shouldn't wish upon anyone, let alone ourselves, unless it's clear that the Lord is the one who is called and equipped and anointed with the Spirit for that task. So two arguments, and these arguments should sound familiar to us. They should remind us of what we hear all the time in the world and sadly sometimes in the church when it comes to the matter of leadership or authority. One is the argument based on the right I think I have to climb up the ladder because I'm just as worthy as those who are above me. The other is the argument in which I seek to discredit those in authority in order to topple them from their place so that I can step into it. We see this, don't we, every time we have an election. Each party tells us why they are worthy of being in power and why the opposition is unworthy and corrupt. What we must never do is allow that style of politics to operate in the church because it only results in destruction. I've witnessed firsthand a church torn apart by politics, by people grasping for power, by using these arguments against a man whom only a few years ago they had said is clearly the one that the Lord has sent us. But the key lesson from this isn't that we just submit unquestioningly to church leaders. The New Testament does call us to submit to authorities in the church and in the world, but we only do so in light of the higher authority that's over both of us, the Lord. This is the problem here. It's not that they're rejecting Moses and Aaron per se, but that they're rejecting the Lord's authority. Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? What is Aaron? Merely a man who's carrying out this burden of being a mediator between the people and their God. Aaron is not the final authority in the tabernacle. He's simply a visual representation of the Lord who is. He stands in his role not because of rights or privileges, but because of the Lord's appointment and call to take upon a responsibility. So by questioning that call, the Lord's choice of Aaron, the rebels are questioning the Lord who gave the call. So God calls for two tests to deal with this double-barreled challenge from Korah the Levite and from the other two men, the Reubenites. So firstly, he deals with this demand that a Levite should be allowed to be a priest. He calls Korah to get all of his men to bring before the Lord their censer. Now, a censer was a dish designed to hold burning coals. They were used by the priests. They would take the coals from the altar of sacrifice, they would carry them into the holy place, and they would sprinkle on them the incense, which would produce this 
this cloud of sweet smelling smoke that would fill the tent and then would leak out the size of the tent and rise up into the sky as a picture of the people's prayers rising up to the Lord. Now only the priests were allowed to use the censers in this way because it involved going in behind that curtain. So here's the first test. If you want to step beyond your appointed role and be a priest, let's see if the Lord will accept you as one. And the Lord gave his verdict. The ground swallowed up their households. The fire came out from the tabernacle and consumed the 250 men who presumed to take on a role that the Lord had not given them. Secondly, he deals with this demand that anyone from any tribe, and especially the firstborn tribe of Reuben, has the right right to take on this leadership priestly status. So, the second test. If you think that any tribe has the right to be the priestly tribe, well, let's see if the Lord will accept you as the one. So, 12 staffs are placed into the tabernacle, one for each tribe, and again, the Lord gives his verdict. Aaron's staff, representing the tribe of Levi, is the only one that sprouts and blood buds and blossoms and produces almonds. Now, I want us to take note of two aspects of God's grace at work in these events, because we can so easily just zoom in on the judgment aspect of it. Firstly, his grace in actually giving these miraculous and visible and frightening demonstrations that what he'd already said in his word is true. He'd already given in the law all of the instructions about the role of Levites in caring for the tabernacle. And in the law, he'd given the rules about Aaron and his sons serving as priests. So his spoken and written revelation should have been enough. If they were truly living by faith, they would have believed his word as it stood. Yet in grace, he still gave these visible demonstrations that confirmed his word. From this point on, the altar was covered with the censers that had been beaten into plates and put on the altar. And from this point on, the staff of Aaron was permanently in the holy place along with the tablets of the Ten Commandments as a reminder of God's design. And what's the reason for this? He says, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Lest they die. The Lord does not enjoy the death of his people. So he does this gracious act, which in one sense is unnecessary. He could just say, just believe my word. But he gives them this, these visible signs so that these people and their hard hearts will be reminded whenever they're tempted to doubt his word. Secondly, and even more profoundly, we see his grace at work in the same way that we saw it last week, in using Moses and Aaron 
and particularly Aaron to intercede on behalf of the people. See the response of the people to the uh, judgment on the men and their households and their followers. All the people grumbled against Moses and against Aaron saying, you've killed the people of the Lord. I said earlier that Korah's rebellion had potential to spread to the whole community and this is what's being confirmed here. They didn't see the judgment as a loving discipline but as harsh and unreasonable. So just as the rebellion began spreading to the whole congregation, so the Lord decrees that his judgment will also spread to the whole congregation. But what happens? Aaron steps into the gap and makes atonement for them. He stands between the dead and the living with his censer. Remember, the censer is the prayers going up to the Lord, the smoke rising as an intercessory prayer to the Lord. And what's great about this is that it's Moses, not the Lord, who instructs Aaron to do this. See, Moses already knew from experience that if they interceded on behalf of the people in the face of judgment, the Lord would hear and would show mercy. So he doesn't need another special instruction from the Lord. He knew that he could rely on him to be true to his promises of mercy. So Aaron stands in between the people and their deserved judgment and he brings the judgment to an end. And I'm hoping you're already making the connection here to Jesus. Then after the second test, it seems as if the people seem to get it, at least for a moment. They've seen the the budded staff of Aaron and they realise that God's choice of Levi as the priestly tribe means that they deserve judgment for presuming to question it. So they brace themselves, expecting more earthquakes and fires and plagues. But then... The start of, in end of chapter 17, the start of 18, there is no judgment. Why? Because again, the Lord puts Aaron in the gap. You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. Now this is actually more than standing in the gap between the living and the dead. This shows us how the judgment is stopped. Aaron the high priest actually bearing the iniquity of the people. Every time he went into that holy place wearing the breastplate embedded with the 12 precious stones, he was bearing all of Israel and all of their sins before the Lord, who was enthroned there on his mercy seat. It's called his mercy seat, not his judgment seat. He came into the holy place to receive mercy over judgment. What a beautiful picture we have of Jesus in these two priestly actions of Aaron. Hanging on the cross... Jesus was in the gap. He was hanging between the living 
and the dead between life and the grave. And in that place, while he didn't hold a literal censer holding incense, he offered three simple prayers to the Father on our behalf. For those who were crucifying him, who represented us in our natural hostility towards God, because we would have crucified him too, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Then as he came to the climax of bearing our sins in all of their full horror and consequence, going down to the darkest corner of hell, he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the place of hell-bound sinners, those who deserve to have the ground open up and for them to go down into Sheol. And then when the judgment was completed, after having declared it is finished, he prayed a prayer that all who know that their sins are forgiven because of Jesus can now pray with confidence and comfort in life and death. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So for us, the glorious end of 18 verse 5 is gloriously true. Never again will there be wrath upon us. Now to finish, I want to mention one New Testament mention of Korah. Jude uses him to describe false teachers. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And we'll see Balaam's error in a couple of weeks. For Jude's readers, the the key problem wasn't politics or leadership roles. It was... That was just a smokescreen that masked the real issue they were facing, the gospel. See, Jude writes earlier in his letter, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people, these are the people who are like Korah, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And that was Korah's rebellion, wasn't it? It wasn't just about the politics of, I want to be in a place of power. His rebellion was against the Lord himself. So beware of any teacher who claims to speak the word of God but who shifts your focus away from Jesus and onto them or onto yourself. Just as the Israelites needed to fix their eyes on Aaron, the chosen and designated and anointed high priest, so too we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, our great high priest. He has stood in the gap. He has borne our iniquity and he continues to intercede for us before the Father's throne. Let's pray.